word of prayer, and then we're going to be getting into um, the scriptures uh, for just a, a few minutes this morning as we journey through this this gospel about uh, the king in exile, uh, about Jesus, the king in exile. So let's let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive right into Matthew chapter 3 and the words of John the Baptist. From, ever, from wherever we have come to this place, Jesus, we have come into a place to be with those who are looking to you. And you said there was greater faith involved in, in seeing you when you are not physically present and following and believing. And on our, our day-to-day, we, we sometimes want to have more. And yet this is how you have structured and ordained the church. And so we ask that your spirit speak to us through your word. That as we as a people have gathered in this place, we would hear your voice. There are so many other voices competing in our heads and outside in our culture and our our thinking but we want to hear the voice of the one who saves us, redeems us, loves us in a way that no one else could. And so, Jesus, we want to hear from you. May you, uh, the living word, be revealed to us through this, the written word, and that we might be more and more transformed and conformed to your image to live our lives um, following you. We pray this by your precious and holy spirit, uh, through your name to God our Father. Amen. Last week, we talked about John the Baptist being a weirdo. Um, He is dressed in camel hair and a leather belt around his waist. He is eating locusts and honey, a delectable uh, feast for sustaining the body. And he is baptizing uh, people calling them to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And a couple of weeks ago we talked about the way that that, what he means by um, repent for the kingdom of God is hand. To repent is to look around, see your situation, and change in conformity to the one who is arriving. Now we're going to find out in a couple verses that John already knows who it is who is coming, who is arriving, the king who will be the kingdom. But in in Matthew chapter three um, and verse five, we read that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him to John the Baptist, and they were being baptized by him in the the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these, able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
But even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then came Jesus. Now we'll get to the then came Jesus, but I want to talk about John's message, John's sermon, um, what he is saying. Now, John is here for one purpose and one purpose only, and it is to prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah, for the Christ. John is a transitional figure. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets and the first of the New Testament saints. He is both, he has a foot in both worlds. In the world of, of Israel's covenant and the world of the new covenant that is coming through Jesus. And so it's sometimes difficult to make sure we understand him in context. And Matthew, writing his gospel, he records John's sermon in a certain way, um, understanding what John was saying better than the people who were there at the day. And the reason that's true is because if you think about it, the people that were there at the day when John was speaking, they had no idea who Jesus was. They had no idea about the other 25 chapters of this book. They didn't know what was coming. Sometimes we judge very harshly um, the people of the Bible because we get we know how the story ends, and we say why don't why didn't they just read the script? But in this moment, they are being confronted with a situation. There are people, and they're coming, and they're repenting, and they're confessing aloud their sins and. Um, we could talk about what it is they're confessing. Um, I think they're actually confessing the sins of Israel, not just their individual listing, their individual um, problems and sins and errors, but rather what was wrong with their world. Um, but when, in verse 7, Pharisees and Sadducees, which is kind of a collective term for the religious elite of, of Israel at the time, came to his baptism, he speaks directly to those religious leaders. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and whether you know a lot about first century Judaism or not, what's called Second Temple Judaism, you've probably heard somebody be called a Pharisee. Um, Pharisees were, um, were actually, they were, uh, they were fairly uh, liberal for their day. It's funny, I just saw a commercial on YouTube. This has nothing to do with the message, but there was this commercial on YouTube. You know how you can't avoid the commercials on YouTube no matter how hard to try? You mute them because they're annoying. And of course, it's 2024, which, so guess what this commercial was about? Politics. Someone had purchased a commercial time where they said, in 1776, the conservatives rebelled against the power of the world. And I went, conservatives rebelled? That's actually oxymoronic. You Conservatives by nature don't want things to change. That's the word. That's why it comes from the word conserve. I don't know if anybody's ever thought of that. Um, so it didn't make any sense. But these, these were the liberals of their day. The Pharisees were uh, liberals because what they believed is the, the God had given the Torah, the, the instruction, the law, the first five books of the, of the Bible. But he had also given the prophets, the Nevim, um, and the writings, the Ketuvim, which make up what is essentially our Old Testament or the Hebrew 
scriptures. And they believe that all of those books were inspired of God. And then they also believed that there was an oral tradition, an oral law that allowed them to interpret the, the, the texts and to read them. And so they had teachers who supervised everything that they called the ravi or, or the rabbis. All right. So the Pharisees were, were generally speaking, pretty liberal, and they were, they were the rural majority of, of the Jews. So they were the people that were out there with the everyday people. And the Sadducees, um, the Sadducees were a group of people, uh, pretty much kind of the, the priesthood and the people around the priesthood, and they were the conservatives. They believed that if anything wasn't written in the first five books of the, of the Hebrew scriptures, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it was not inspired by God, and they rejected anything that wasn't in those books, and they were hyper-literal in the way that they read things. So they came up with all kinds of interesting explanations for how things should be done. And the two groups, that sounds like those two groups should be like arguing all the time, right? Like super, super liberals, super conservatives, the extremes. But they actually um, would rule, rule, loosely speaking, over Judaism. They would make decisions as a court, as an assembly, what today we call the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. They would form this and they would alternate leadership. They just took turns. First a Pharisee would lead, then a Sadducee would lead, then a Pharisee would lead, then a Sadducee would lead. Um, that, by the way, resulted in what you think it would result in, which is chaos. You, you, you know, I mean, where would the world be without all those companies with two CEOs, right? Um, but the, uh, this, that was kind of how they kind of balanced things out and so this these religious elite whether they were liberal or conservative or whatever they hear about this weirdo down at the jordan river down down by in the valley down there about a a couple days walk away from jerusalem and he's baptizing people and he's calling for repentance and they say hey somebody go find out what this guy is doing figure it out let's let's go see what he's doing and as soon as he sees them, John, who is the model of diplomacy, says, look, somebody kicked over the tin foil and a bunch of snakes came out. Now, how many of you, I grew up on farms. How many of you uh, are familiar with having snakes everywhere? You guys... How many of you lived in a world, most of you, you're like, snakes do not live in my yard. Now, I lived, I, again, I lived in farm country, so most of the snakes we had were garter snakes, harmless, you know, milk snakes, that kind of stuff. But we also had copperheads, which are vipers. Um, we had uh, water moccasins and, and all kinds of, of other things that would make your life miserable. Um, and, you know, snakes, uh, when I go hiking, by the way, how many of you know there are rattlesnakes in New Hampshire? Okay, good. Make sure you're aware of that. Um, there are poisonous snakes in New Hampshire. I had somebody one time that said, no poisonous snake can live in a place this cold. What? That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, um, what happens with snakes is, you know, during the day they're cold-blooded, so they like to sun. They like to lay out in the sun and warm up. But when they sleep, uh, the sun for them is like caffeine. They can't lay in the sun and rest. If they're in the sun, you know, their, their body's moving quickly. So if they want to kind of take their body to a dormant state, they go find a, a cave or a hole um, or some piece of junk you've left out in your yard because farmers in the part of New Jersey where I lived like to leave junk in their yards. 
And so when you were cleaning up the yard, you never just walked up and picked up a piece of something off of the ground. That was a combination for disaster. You always took a stick and you flipped it. And when you did that, the snakes would scatter. Now we moved to Massachusetts in 1992. And um, uh, my mom is terribly afraid of snakes. She, but my mom also doesn't believe in killing living things. So one day in the spring, she was gardening. My mom loves to garden flowers and, and produce and stuff. She was gardening, and all of a sudden, we're playing somewhere, and we hear, Kirk, that's my dad's name, Kirk, snake! And she has jumped 20 feet straight up in the air onto the, the stoop of our house. My dad comes around with a shovel and whacks it. And she goes, no, don't kill it! You wonder why my parents had trouble getting along. So he picks the snake up and he takes it to the edge of the edge of the, the property and tells her, you know, I let it wander off home. Well, the amazing thing was I was 15 at the time. We would we would uh, from time to time clear stuff off the yard in Massachusetts because the people that lived there before us left stuff all over the yard and one and we would overturn something and all the snakes would go Whoop! and there was always this one snake that just kind of went whoa. And then one day I ran him over with the lawnmower, lawnmower by, by accident. It wasn't on purpose. I wasn't like looking for him. Like people were like, but this, this snake that my dad had walloped lived for a couple of years, but all the other snakes had scattered and he just kind of, kind of meandered off uh, very slowly. <laughs> kind of like, hold up guys. Right? <laughs> if you live around snakes, you know what John is talking about. When you expose that group of snakes, especially if they're babies, if it's a brood of babies, small snakes, when you expose them, they all run. They all scatter. They all look for whatever space. And so John says, you've come out to me. What did I say that exposed your reality that suddenly you're terrified, suddenly you're fleeing, suddenly you're afraid, suddenly you're scattering in every direction to try to deal with me? What's really under the hood here. You're scattering like snakes who have been hiding in the dark, spreading their venom on unsuspecting people. What a sermon to win friends and influence people. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he mixes metaphors. In verse 8 he says, don't be a snake, but bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, now John is not stupid. He knows the Bible. Can anyone think of a story of the Bible that involves a snake and a fruit tree? He says, you're deceitful and you're manipulative and you're venomous. And all God created you to do was to bear fruit. He wanted you to provide sustenance and instead you provided venom. He is indicting the religious leaders of his day. They thought they were at the center of things. They thought they had things under control. I think they honestly, genuinely believed, many of them anyway, that they were doing their best to hold together God's thing. 
that it was up, it, they had to do it. It had been centuries since God had spoken through a prophet. It had been there had been multiple false messiahs. There had been uh, conquests, and 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 they were ruled by the Romans now. And there was always the threat of violence. And so they're desperately trying to hold together God's thing, trying to work together even though they disagree. And yet John says, "You're just a bunch of snakes." He says, bear fruit. Your job, what you were created for, was to provide food and sustenance, not venom and destruction. You were created to grow in the sun, not to hide from the sun. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, see the situation. Understand where you are. You have the tools to get right but I know what you're going to say, he says. It says in verse 8, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now when you read that line, that line sounds innocent enough, right? Aren't Jews descended from Abraham? Isn't that what he's saying? That's not what they were saying. They were saying that as the descendants of Abraham, they had the right to decide what God was saying in the scriptures, they could make their own choices about what needed to be done because God wasn't going to speak to them. They had to speak for God. Well, Abraham's our father. That entitles us. Think about in our society where people think that for some reason their descent or their, their position or whatever gives them authority to decide for others what God wants for them. The religious control. I can think of on multiple sides. This is not a liberal or conservative thing. I can think of religious institutions all through the world. Some big, some small, some pretty, some ugly. Who are led by people who say, well, God's not going to deal with this, so we have to deal with it for ourselves. They open a door to go down a road that violates the very kingdom they say they're defending. He says, don't you think for a second that if God was able to, he would raise up children to Abraham from these stones? Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But just so you know, just a little bit of time from now, Jesus is going to be tempted by Satan. And one of the first things he's going to say to him, he says, why don't you take these stones and make them bread? And, and Matthew's intentionally making a connection there. John, John, says to, John says to them, God can make the stones into the children of Abraham. And Satan says, you can make stones into food for yourself. He's actually acknowledging who Jesus is, but um, we'll get to that. And then in verse 10, he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, it's interesting. In northern New England, living in New England, we don't think this way. We have trees everywhere. I remember when I first went to get my driver's license in New Hampshire, there was a poster on the wall. It said 80% of New, of, uh, New Hampshire is forest and the other 20% is underwater. That was an accurate description of this state. We have trees everywhere, but, but in, in Israel, that's not the case. It's a very dry climate. So if you're going to grow a tree, which requires a tremendous amount of water, which is a rare commodity, that tree better have a purpose. 
In fact, that tree better take that water and the minerals from the ground and convert them into something useful because if it doesn't, you're not going to let it be there drinking up all that water, soaking up all that energy that could otherwise be used by a tree that's going to be profitable. So what do you do with that tree? Well, you can't build anything from it, all right? Not a lot of wood construction going on in the, the wilderness of Judea. Everything's built from stone. So what do you do with it? You burn it. If it's not bearing fruit, you burn it. And he says the axe is at the root. Now, I don't know how many times I've read this passage and it never once occurred to me. An axe at the root of a tree means someone is wielding it. The axe just sitting by the tree is just an axe sitting by a tree. In order for an axe to be a threat to a tree, there has to be somebody ready to cut it down. He says, there is somebody coming. The axe is ready. If you don't start bearing fruit, bad things are coming. Because what's the point? What's the point of religious leaders that don't help people, they just spread venom? What is the point of a tree that doesn't bear fruit when that's its entire job? What is the point of you? That's what he's saying to them. Why do we need you? Have you ever had a moment when you realized you didn't need something? You were like, you know, I can do this on my own. Now, there are always those moments where you realize you didn't. How many of you have ever thought you were so good at, at like, like drawing a straight line you didn't need a ruler and then discovered, in fact, you were not nearly as good at it as you were? How many of you have smartphones have ever turned autocorrect off? I don't need you. You're always messing things up. And then you send a message to your wife that says, fur cuts of the scarf with the bow. And your wife replies back, what did you mean? And you say, I don't know. <laughs> and then you turn autocorrect back on. So that because you didn't realize how often you misspell words. I, I don't speak from experience on that um, at all. What is the point? Let me, let, me, let me bring John's sermon really, really to its point. The Messiah was coming. John says, I baptized you with water for repentance. He says, I just was bringing to the surface the problem. And you guys are already trying to figure out what's going on. You're already trying to maneuver this for your own advantage. All I did was say the kingdom is coming. The king is on his way. The king is arriving. And now I'm going to tell you something. You're a bunch of snakes when you should be fruit trees and you're fruit trees that aren't producing fruit. And so somebody's coming with an ax and he uses the illustration. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand. He says someone's coming to draw a line of demarcation to divide the world into two camps. Now people do not like to hear this, but it's true. There are only Two positions when it comes to Jesus. In, in your handbook, in your, your bulletin, you little handout about the quest for the historical Jesus. That nonsense is one of the most dangerous things that has ever been professed in the name of Christ. 
that there's a historical Jesus and there's a Jesus of faith. And, and the Jesus of faith is okay, it gets you through the day. But the real Jesus, he didn't believe any of the stuff that the Bible says. The gospels aren't true. There's no accurate representation. Jesus was just a love, peace, joy, hippie. And, and not surprisingly, everybody involved in the Jesus seminar was hippies. I'm not judging hippies. I'm just saying hippies have a preference. My dad is a hippie, or was, before he lost all his hair. Then he had to become a, a pastor. He had no choice. Um, there are only two camps in the world, and don't let anybody tell you anything different. There are only two groups of people in the world when it comes to Jesus. Confronted with Jesus, we either repent We look around, we see the reality, we see the situation, we see the brokenness of the world, we see the errors of our ways, and we repent, we change, we turn, and we follow him. And the other option is judgment. There is no other option. Repent or judgment. We don't like to say that. We don't like to say to people, look, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by him. We try to mellow out our Jesus because we want a Jesus that's acceptable to whatever faddish, political, or denominational, or theological idea is present in the world. We try to make our Jesus attractive enough that people can kind of be 20% Christians and maybe 30% and kind of ease their way over to Jesus. And you know what? It does take time for some of us to come to faith. But I'm going to tell you, when you make the decision for Jesus, it's not a gradual thing. It is all in or all out. There's no in-between. Now, we believe in creating space and environments where people can meet Jesus and work their way through what he means in the world. But let me tell you something. As an atheist who cannot get past Jesus, I'm going to tell you one thing. I would love, I would love, I would love to be able to live my life without the standard of Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures. I would love to be able to be okay with everything that I know is sin because of Jesus. I would love to not have the authority of God's Holy Spirit and His Word in my life. But the fact of the matter is, when I met Jesus, when I encountered Jesus, even if He was one one one-thousandth of who He is in the Gospel, He was willing, He was worthy for everything that I am. You choose Jesus. You repent. You follow You bear fruit. I know we don't like to say it, but the other option is judgment. When I was in undergraduate, we had to read a book. Um, C.S. Lewis, John F. Kennedy, and uh, um, Aldous Huxley all died on the same day in 1963. And there's a book about the three of them having a conversation in heaven. All right. If you know anything about Aldous Huxley, C.S. Lewis, and John F. Kennedy, this book was a very interesting fictional conversation between three people that are utterly incompatible. And the book itself philosophically was a great argument. It was an interesting book. It's worth reading. I can't remember the name of it, but it's, it's worth reading. But at the very end, it's left very open as to whether those who did not have their faith in Jesus would get another chance after they had died, to kind of fix the problems of their lives. 
The Bible says it is appointed to man once to die. And after that, judgment. Now what is judgment? Judgment is not God being mean and cruel to those who didn't follow the rules. Judgment is what John says. He is coming to draw a line. Those who repent, who do the hard work of looking at themselves as God sees themselves. Those who repent and follow Jesus, when they are judged, they will be judged worthy not because of their own righteousness. The Bible says it is that we are not righteous. There is no, none righteous, no, not one. But because Jesus loved us, And when we repented, when we turned our hearts to him, he did a miracle that brought us into fellowship with him so that when God judges us, he sees Jesus' righteousness, not my sin. But those who are outside of Jesus, the judgment is the same. The judgment is there are those in Jesus and God sees them with his righteousness, and then there are those who God sees our own righteousness, and it is never enough. It is never good enough. The Bible says the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You say, that is so narrow-minded. I wish it wasn't this way. The the Apostle Paul even says in Romans 9 through 11, he says, I wish it wasn't like this. He says, if there was a way for me to give up my righteousness in Christ for the righteous, to give it to my brethren, I would do it. But there's no way. Each one of us is given the choice, repentance or judgment. It's not a pleasant option. It's probably angering and irritating some of you. Because we want to live by our own standards and our own beliefs and our own righteousness. And trust me, I wish that were so. But John leaves no room for discussion. When Jesus comes, when we meet Jesus, a line is drawn. Repentance or judgment. He say. If I could just get the Jesus thing totally within my mind and comprehension, I would be happy. Again, let me reiterate. I am an atheist who can't get past Jesus. I don't get the Jesus thing completely. All I know is I can't help but follow him. There are days, by the way, I know pastors aren't about him in this, that I don't want to. There are days when I would prefer my self-righteous atheism. I would prefer my, 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 my own views on things. There are moments when studying the Bible, I read what the Bible says and I go, that can't possibly be right. I can come up with a better solution. But it's repentance or judgment. This morning, if you are not a follower of Christ, if you are not yet ready to make, you're, you're struggling with this. Can I tell you something? It's like parenting. You will never be ready 
But when you choose, God makes it possible. And I would encourage you today, look around, see the world, see its brokenness. This world is so broken and so shattered and so fragmented. There's so much that is wrong with it. Doesn't it, doesn't it just resonate with you that if there is a God, he must want to do something to save and transform and renew and resurrect and raise from the dead something in this broken dead world to life. And I'm telling you right now, Jesus does want to raise something to life, and it's you. I would encourage you in this moment. I would encourage you in this moment to make a simple declaration, a simple confession with me. Join me in a prayer of confession, believers and unbelievers alike. Jesus, I do not understand everything about you, but I put my faith in you. I see the brokenness of the world, and I want to be a part of the new life you bring. I put my faith and trust in you today as my Savior, my Lord, and although I don't understand everything about it, I believe it to be true, and so I will follow you. And I pray whether you are a Christian or, or still exploring or whatever, and you, maybe you're not ready to make that step yet, but that's where we're going. As a church, we are always moving toward Jesus, we are always repenting, seeing the brokenness of our world and moving toward him. And I pray this morning you will make that commitment. You will take that step. And if you made that commitment this morning, all I would ask, you don't, you don't have to do anything yet, like public or big or anything. If you would just say to me, I'm following Jesus at some point today, tomorrow, down the week. I don't, maybe I don't understand, but I'm ready to follow him. So I can join in celebrating that choice. Jesus, you are our father, you are our God and our master. You are our savior. We put our faith and trust in you. Your spirit gives us life. Your father is our sovereign and ruler, creator, and you judge and you call us all to you. And so it is in your name we thank you for your work of grace in us. Amen.